Good afternoon. Welcome to Navarra FM here on London's number one radio station, Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Aaron Bastani at Aaron Bastani on Twitter. And I'm joined, as is so often the case, by James Butler at PS Penalist, Senior Editor at Navarra Media. Hi, James. Hello. We are also joined in the studio today by James Schneider of Momentum. Hi, James. Hi. We were also meant to be joined by Ben Sellers at Mr. Ben Sellers, one of the brains behind the JC4 Leader social media assets last year. Unfortunately, he has been involved in a minor train accident. He was coming down from Newcastle. We were trying to undo Navarro's metropolitan bias. Uh, so he won't, he won't, yeah, he will not be able to make it by the looks of things. Also, uh, Laurie Penny will not be able to make it because uh, I think she overdid it with the, uh, the sort of Dionysiac uh, <laughs> uh, sort of, you know, side of the left last night. So she, yeah. has, she has just come back from a book tour. She's probably she has. Tired. No, she's had a very arduous couple of days working very hard. I think she probably overdid it with the wine and beer last night. Who could blame her? I think you and I probably would have done ten times worse, James. In any case, in any case, today's discussion is going to be about Labour and its media strategy. Clearly, the context for that is Labour polling pretty well in the last month. One poll, I think it was an ICM poll, wasn't it? Showed them level. Another one, the day after, showed them slightly ahead. Between that, the junior doctor strike, a terrible budget for the Chancellor, the resignation of Ian Duncan Smith, and now the revelations around the Prime Minister's tax affairs. I think this is a really germane argument, but also, do they even need a media strategy at this point, right? Things are going so well, seemingly, for Labour. So, James, I'll start with you. Also, I want to make an apology quickly to the listeners. There are obviously no women on today's show. That's because of unforeseen circumstances. We do aim to never do that. I think in all of our output in the last couple of years, this has not happened. So, my apologies. I'm not including, of course, shows with just James and I because we're two senior editors with the project. In terms of guests, this is really uh, very rare. My apologies again. James, uh, let's let's start. Um, Labour doing very well, especially given uh, before the shadow cabinet reshuffle earlier this year, things looked like they were in a bit of a mess. Is it because of or in spite of the efforts of the leadership and the people around them that things are going so well right now, do you think? I think that Clearly, the Corbyn-McDonnell leadership has had a massive, uh, a massive effect. If you look at, I think, the two key things that people thought about the Tories, which helped them to win the election last year, was one, economic competence, and two, they may not be that nice, but they're not downright mean, and they're kind of there's a purpose to it. And um, th- this was an argument that pretty much the previous Labour elite had accepted. If you look at the the leaked report that was created um, for Harriet Harman about why Labour lost the election and what their responses should be, it was basically, look, accept the Tory narrative. Um, Labour apparently, you know, too light on welfare. We've got to attack welfare. We've got to go with the Tory line. um, And we've we've kind of got to accept that we've lost the argument. uh, Apparently in the Shadow Cabinet meeting when Harriet Harman put forward saying that we're going to abstain on the welfare, Bill Andy Burnham tried to put up a bit of a, a bit of a defence, and she said we've lost that argument. Right? And I think that's you know let's compare that to now. Now we have after you know less than a year of you know less than a year of Corbyn, six months right, right six months of Corbyn, but he you know started changing the debate in June. Uh, we've had we have uh, a very clear line from Labour, which is 
in defence of welfare, but in defence of welfare as part of an understanding of what's going on in the economy, which is, isn't just that it, you know, what the Tories have been doing only affects the bottom 20%. We can see how it's been hitting kind of the bottom 80% of uh, of, the, of, um, of society. Uh, Ian Duncan Smith's resignation saying that it's political, not an economic choice. That's a Corbyn line. That's a Corbyn line from uh, from last summer. And the idea that the Tories are kind of cruel and mean, which has come out, I think, and that's starting to seep back into um, uh, kind of public perceptions of them, comes from Corbyn's kind of uh, his moral opposition to them. Do you think that the IDS resignation would have happened if Corbyn wasn't leader? Because I saw when this was all unfolding, terrible budget for the Tories, and then of course that resignation. You had some people. I mean, they were a minority. Let's be honest, because it's, a, I think, a faint, you know, it's, you know, it's a, it's an absurd position to be quite frank. Oh look, Corbyn's polling like this. This is happening. Imagine if it was Yvette Cooper or Liz Kendall. I mean, do you think things would be where they are? Were we to have had another? Uh, Labour leader in place or, or are these endogenous problems within the Tory party that we're going to have a crisis at some point it just happens to have transpired on his watch it's both. I mean, clearly the Conservative Party is, is much more internally fractured and it's got all these sort of tensions which have been papered over beforehand and clearly that was going to come out at some point but um, would it have come out over welfare, over the idea of a welfare cap, which is something that one of the leadership candidates supported, the other two weren't going weren't gonna to vote on? I mean, if they were in charge, then Labour would have ceded that terrain entirely. It would have been the, the, the kind of pain for um, one bit of the Conservative Party for forcing through these kinds of cuts, the cuts to disability, wouldn't have so much been there. So it's not just we can go, oh, Corbyn has knocked out Ian Duncan Smith, Corbyn's smashing it, he's, he's, he's knocking over the Tories left, right and centre. It's not just all him, but there's clearly there's clearly an effect. And there's clearly also the effect of um, undermining Osborne's economic narrative, which has been kind of the slow and steady work which McDonald has been doing for the last six months. Yeah, <clears throat> Yeah, I don't. I don't know that I agree with you. Actually, that that uh, a Labour media media policy doesn't matter, or oh, that it might not I matter. Said, I was being flippant. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, we're all surprised at how good yeah, things are going at the moment, yeah, right? I, well, I mean, I don't know that. I don't know that things are going so well. Okay. I mean, it, I think there's. I think there's. There's something very fortunate here. There's something very fortunate that actually, uh, simple inaction, is a benefit. So uh, the Tories are tearing themselves apart, and that probably was going to happen over Europe regardless. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the inflection point over, over welfare, yes, I think that's probably true. Um, you know, and I think there's a, a broader question here, which, which we can come to in time, over whether uh, it is of interest for people on the left to be so concerned with media strategy. And I think that's a matter that we can come on to discuss. Um, but but I take your point, and I think I think there is something something that really surprised me when I so I watched um, the budget uh, as 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 I do uh, because I, I'm sort of a masochist in some ways. Um, it's quite exciting this year. No, it wasn't. Um, but the, I mean, the, the, so but but what was interesting above all was to was to watch the uh, the the form of the response and the response not in the chamber but actually the media response itself which said look you know corbyn this is a this is a it's better than we expected the speech right because they they think he's a a very bad parliamentarian whatever that means um it was largely a prescriptive speech didn't really respond that that strongly to to the stuff that osborne said it's a very hard thing to do um but then what was interesting to me was was the way that the 
that the, that uh, you know, in a, uh, as soon as this stuff start, started kicking off about uh, the welfare cap and the Duncan Smith resignation. Um, that you had people talking up the sort of Liz Kendall intervention and imagine if she was leader. It's sort of rather slightly whinging um, question, rather stumbled over, uh, which was along the lines of, uh, uh, does the Prime Minister accept that he is a bad person or something something like that? You think, OK, well, this is being talked up. And they're, they're, so, come to the point, uh, there's something here, uh, I think, that's interesting in terms of media response response of commentators, response of those who are uh, signed up in one way or another to the sort of Yvette Cooper or Andy Burnham or Liz Kendall project who think, okay, well, we have have a certain power in terms of shaping uh, the narrative about what goes on in Parliament. We, the sort of commentators, sketch writers, interpreters, get to take the raw material of a parliamentary debate and shape it into something that then shapes electoral perceptions, something like that. And you think that's consciously and that's consciously thought about by these people, right? I think I think it is increasingly consciously thought about, precisely because the course of the past six months, and in fact, back into the Corbyn campaign, has been an experience of finding the limits of those powers for for these commentators actually, and going and saying, oh, actually, okay, it doesn't seem it doesn't actually seem to work as strongly as we thought. And that, I think, is interesting. That, that, that I think, is actually a much more kind of fruitful avenue for exploration than, you know, the ins and outs of Labour's media policy itself. Exactly the, the relationship between, say, a public sphere, a media sphere, um, and political change and the way that political organisations work. Um, I think it's second nature for them. So, I mean, how necessarily conscious are they thinking, right, we've got to do in Corbyn the way in which we're going to do it is we're going to talk up Liz Kenner, whether they consciously think that or whether they think it's second nature to them. Corbyn, by definition, can't work. That's that's what they think. That's what mm. our, our priests of, of media commentary, which overlaps with you know bits of parliament and, mm. and so on. It you know There's a set of rules in politics. It's very, very simple. Um, uh, you can't win from the left. The the British people are basically quite right wing, quite small C conservative. Uh, the only way you win is with some kind of um, pizzazz and presidentialism and and uh, somehow. And also, we need to have think tanks as well. That's just, that's their sort of basic framework. And all of those things are completely untrue, right? Like people people don't like. Uh, presidential-looking politics. They don't like the Westminster politicians. They don't like the Westminster politicians. Um, so, it, as James said, it's slightly unravelling for them. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things to say in addition here is remember the Blair intervention during the leadership campaign, which said... So, there was not, a couple, wasn't there? Well, it mm. was... Uh, yeah, unwise. Um, it, not only uh, does he think that, that Labour cannot win from the left, but even if it could, he wouldn't want it to. Uh, and that, I think, is interesting. And that, 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 actually, is, that actually, I think, is rather revealing. Um, I, think, I think it is very, very telling. Um, so, so this isn't a, a purely sort of question of, of, of sheer uh, political strategy, right, in terms of electoral victory for these people. It's not that, oh, we wish we could win from the left, but we can't. And, and, and it's important to pin that on them because... Now these people say, "Look, you know, oh, um, I, I would love it to be the case that this were that this were possible. I would, I would love to live in Bernie Sanders land or or Jeremy Corbyn land. But but we're interested in taking the real difficult decisions that power entails, and that's what's going sort of to polytonic line, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She and took that surprisingly there. early, actually, because yeah. she was saying this when it wasn't absolutely she's clear a, that Corbyn was going to win. A veteran of the SDP, remember? Yeah, this. it's really not surprising. Yeah. 
Can uh, I just say... I, can I, go, go on. I mean, there, there are, I think, additional questions here, and there are additional questions that anyone uh, on the left... And look, I come from an, uh, an extra labour position. I come from an extra mural position in regards to labour. And, you know, I'm probably not as hostile as many people <laughs> um, outside the Labour Party are to it. But I, I do think there are questions we have to ask about accommodationism here, about, you know, the, the exact calculus of the relationship between social movements and the Labour Party. But I also think there are small p political questions um, about Jeremy Corbyn himself and the relationship to the leadership. Because one of the things I didn't mention when you were saying all of this is going very well, is that actually it looks like Labour are going to do pretty badly in, in the forthcoming local elections. The rulings in Thrasher, electoral projection, now you might have some issues with this, but they're reasonably eminent political That's not scientists. new, we knew that. We knew that six uh, months ago, Yes, right? OK, but what has happened about it in the six months since then? And this is, this is this, these, these kind of rather, you know, small political calculations matter to the inside of the Labour This is where media strategy does matter because it's about the framing, right? So the 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 anti-Corbyn hostile, which you know, comes from the right of the party, but also people outside the party significantly to Labour's right, uh, have been trying to amp up the idea Labour must win 400 seats in order to do it, comparing it to the, you know in one particular set of comparisons. Mm. Um, uh, but these are elections that the previous one was before the rise of UKIP. Right? So this, there, there's a completely different dynamic to them. And the last three years of local election results, Labour got 32% last year, 31% the year before, and 29% in 2013. Mm. So, I mean, the rulings in Thrasher had, what, Labour at 32 and the Tories at 31, right? which is, a, you know, that is an improvement on all of the last three years by some distance, right? The only year it's not better than is the year before UKIP became a big force and started to run a lot of candidates in local elections, which also happened to be the high point of Millibandism. 2012, right? 2012, yeah. right? Which Omni is Shambles the, budget. Omni Shambles budget, which is the comparison point. Yeah. But the, and the thing about these, um, the comparisons with Rawlings and Thrasher, I don't know how it's going to go out, uh, play out, but in a lot of these kind of swing councils like Harlow and Crawley and so on, it's which way does the the UKIP vote go, I think, is going to determine a lot of a lot of awards. And really, we don't know. And the models aren't really set up yet because UKIP ha- there haven't been as enough of these three-way marginals to see what, uh, at council level, to see what's going to happen. I totally agree. I mean, if you look at the stuff that was going wrong with predictions around the last general election and Liberal Democrats going to the Conservative Party, there was no model for what happens when you get a mainstream political party of 50 seats collapsing... And it's been in coalition with a centre-right party, but it's been historically seen as a party of the centre-left. Nobody really knew how that vote would unfold. I think it's similar now with UKIP, with a left-wing Labour leader. Let's not talk too much about this, because that's going to be a whole other show. That's not until May. Maybe you and I disagree, James. I think Labour will do surprisingly well in England. They're still going to lose pretty badly, but I think they'll do okay. I think they'll do terribly in Scotland, but people have accepted that for a while, and I think they'll probably win the London Mayor. If that happens, I don't think it's a terrible night. What's more, around the framing question, nobody is saying now, seriously, he'll have to resign if X, Y, Z happens. That isn't happening, I think, because of events of the last couple of months, really since the reshuffle. I think the reshuffle was a real turning point, actually, a real consolidation of the leadership. And events that have uh, transpired thereafter, I think, have really meant that these calls for resignation, they're going to fall on you know, deaf ears. I think he's basically until 2020, or if not, a time of his choosing. Again, we don't know because events can change so quickly, as the last week's proved. Regarding your point about movement building and media, I think 
the relationship between not the Labour Party itself, more so the Corbyn leadership and its digital media strategy actually is crucial in terms of movement building. Um, it's crucial in terms of movement building because you're talking about creating an independent basis of resources, money, members, outside necessarily of the party apparatus. We'll talk about how momentum fits in here as well, right? And also how the leadership communicates with not just the public, but the membership and how much it listens to the membership. Again, if you look at Sanders, people go, oh, Sanders had terrible race politics. That isn't true. But there was a real lacuna in the stuff he was saying six months ago, a year ago, around class and race. They're now very explicitly adopting the messaging of Black Lives Matter. That's because there is a listening exercise going on with the grassroots. I think that wouldn't have happened to this extent without digital. Is that happening here? No. And that's my point, right? It won't happen unless the similar kinds of strategies are adopted. Mm. But you, maybe you disagree. Uh, I don't disagree. Uh, I mean, I don't... <laughs> uh, so I think I think there is... And I'm, I'm always very wary of intervening here on, on the basis of sort of... Uh, sort of socialist history because I think actually we're in a very interesting period where alignments are changing and actually there are serious uh, questions of the relations of forces of production and so on which I'll leave to one side but there, there is a history here in the US that I think is worth considering when, when it comes to something like the Sanders campaign which is the kind of Schachtmanite history and the, the sort of enter the democratic party and democratic socialists and, and so on um, which you know, in, in the US, that, that looks pretty much like people sort of attempting to bend a party to their will that just will not bend. Now, the movementist criticism, and by movementist I mean people who are outside the Labour Party but who have been involved in social movements or, or sort of uh, left-wing campaigns outside of Parliament, direct action movements, UK Uncut, Climate, climate Camp, sort of anarchist or anarchist-inspired movements although not exclusively, but, but that was the very popular ideology of the last, I think. I think, I think we can say quite safely that the last decade is, that's the, the go-to set of thoughts in, in those movements. Now, the criticism here, which is not a criticism I, I quite share, but I, I think is worth considering, is that the nature of the Labour Party is such that these attempts to transform it into a party that listens to a movementist base and something like Momentum or that reaches out to an array of movements so it becomes a sort of clearinghouse for them is doomed by the nature of electoral politics and here people will point, point to the Syriza experience is doomed to orient itself to a system of compromises within Parliament that necessarily involves sort of Betraying those. I'm trying not to use a language of moral betrayal because I think these these political calculations are difficult, and I don't think there's a necessarily a clear answer to them. But I, I think it's worth asking there then what the guarantees are about the relationship between those movements, the electoral party itself, and this question of sort of being concerned primarily with media representation of the party. So this is a. a, a uh, a point related, I think, to the theme of today's discussion. So those those questions of uh, how activists get involved in arguing over how the Labour Party is portrayed in the press, uh, how it is uh, talked about, how it is represented, rather than perhaps being involved in work that is less concerned with that kind of representation. I wonder if there is a, a difficulty or a uh, sort of impasse here. Well, of course, there's a difficulty, but I mean, let's—we don't know if it's if it's an on pass in this particular 
moment. I mean, it might be in this moment, it may not be in this moment, it may be in another one, it may not be in another one. Um, the idea that the Labour Party, because suddenly Jeremy Corbyn wins with this massive mandate, completely transforms into being this movement party, which uh, with, a, with a million members at the heart of every community, organising um, uh, tenants' unions and organising um, uh, 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 people on zero-hours contracts and doing all of these things that we probably think that it, not only in order to win, but in order to win and then transform society are necessary. It doesn't just do over night, right? The party doesn't it it can't transform. We've changed the leadership of the party. Uh, A lot of its culture and practices remain in that same form, what people are used to, used to from being a party overwhelmed, you know, mainly concerned with, and not that this is a bad thing, but we're asking for it to be concerned with electoral politics and with movement building and seeing those two things as having some kind of a relationship. Um, It's way too early to say whether it's impossible for that to happen. Clearly things are changing. I mean, the Labour Party is much more open to movements than it was beforehand. It is a bit more like a movement than it was beforehand. But is it a movement party? No, it's not a movement party. But I, I think we've got to look at the, the kind of dynamics at play within it. And if we're interested in the kind of movement party bit of it, how those can be strengthened. There's a couple of points here. So firstly, again, comparison here between Sanders and Corbyn. Clearly the big difference between the UK and the US is A, there's a much more primary oriented system, which allows outsiders to do pretty well, both on the left and the right, historically. And obviously we have a uh, we have a constitutional setup in this country where the executive stems from the legislature. There's a much greater emphasis on a party system. Corbyn is in hoc to a political party in a much greater way than Bernie Sanders ever would have to be, even as president, right? My contention is this. I'd imagine if Jeremy Corbyn, if, there was, if we had a presidential system and it had a primary system like they do in the States in terms of the parties arriving at a nominee, I think Jeremy Corbyn would be dynamite. And that's kind of what we saw last summer. Strangely, I know it's strange to say it, but that's kind of what we saw last summer. There was an amazing interaction between the offline stuff he was doing, the rallies and the kind of online persona that was being cultivated. Surprised all of us, right? But that isn't what we've got. So this is where I think comparisons between Corbyn and Sanders are um, limited because we have a very, very different setup, right? You know, Sanders, I don't think, was technically a member of the Democrat Party until last November. Mm. Okay, Jeremy Corbyn's been a member of the Labour Party since he was 16. So there's a very, very different set of affinities and alliances. You know, what would... Paul Mason did a very strange article this week around, uh, you know, nuclear disarmament. Let's say that became the new Labour position. Let's say all of a sudden Corbyn's politics changed very dramatically. I don't want to stick too much in this whole kind of meme of, uh, of betrayal and so on, because I want to talk about media stuff and we've got a lot to cover. But I think this is an important question to ask somebody who's come on from momentum, right? What would he have to do for him to lose momentum support? Wow. Um, what would a Labour leader have to do in the abstract, if that's... I mean, it depends what lose. I mean, B. It depends what lose support mean. I mean, momentum's not going to leave the Labour Party. No, exactly. But I mean, exactly. So the the claim is that momentum acts as a, a faction. Okay, that's. I think that's patently not true. I think that's mm-hmm. evidently not true. But clearly, the people involved in it, the mem- you've just launched a membership model, clearly hold a particular politics. If a Labour leader was to move away from that politics, what would be the consequence from momentum? I think people will continue to campaign on the issues that they want to do. And if there's a variance with positions taken by the party, there would be a variance taken, you know, in position taken by the party. The momentum is not a, it's not a fan club for the, the Labour Party. It's not a fan club for the Labour leadership. It is um, trying to uh, 
play a constructive role in this process of making the Labour Party more of a movement party, both in relationship to social movement and to and to Labour movement. So it, there being that kind of attention is not only normal, but it's kind of written into that in a in a in a useful and a dynamic way. Um, otherwise, if you know you're talking about these compromising forces, we're trying to make some of these negotiations and some of these balance of forces not just take place within a. a you know, parliamentary party that sits very close to here that has a particular set of interests and all the rest of it and broaden that out one way you broaden that out is to the membership two is by bringing uh, trade unions more and three is through bringing in movements and other kind of sort of civic activism mm. yeah I mean I, I I suppose I mean I'm I'm one of the things I think that probably the sort of movementist critique could do a bit better for itself is become a little more familiar with the history of the Labour Party because this question about the, the Labour Party's nature and its setup and its orientation seems to me to be a controversy that raises its head periodically, particularly when large cultural and political and economic shifts are in sway. It's true at the beginning of the 20th century, it's true after the Second World War, and it's true now, I think, as well. Um, there is, I think, a, a question, it continues to be a question, I mean... I and think, in the late 70s, early 80s as yeah, well. Yeah, indeed. Um, in, in fact, <laughs> which is the reaction to what we're getting uh, today as a reaction partly to, to the way the party was set up then or changed then. There is something I think that is, is worth dwelling on, though, which is the, the kind of... The, the interesting thought that the relationship of movements to the party are that it keeps it honest... Which may well be true. Uh, I, I think it perhaps requires a certain degree of accommodation from the movements, which is perhaps uh, unsustainable. Uh, but I, just, I mean, I just want to probably park that there. Um, one of the things that strikes me, I mean, you mentioned, Aaron, this, this sort of Mason security doctrine, the, I don't know, the Thornbury doctrine, doctrine or whatever we'll call it, uh, which is that one makes an accommodation with Trident while ending expeditionary warfare and changing. Now, this is, you know, I, I wonder about this, and I, I can understand the political calculations mm, involved. It's not unreasonable, is it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think the questions concerning nuclear weapons are actually of a different order to mere political calculation, and mm. that's actually a point of intransigence for me. Mm. Um, I mean, actually, I think probably the best way to attack Trident is its sort of cost and ineffectiveness. Mm. Um, I mean... But perhaps this points us to, to something, right? And, and this points us to, yes, there is a difficulty here. There's a difficulty in terms of moving within the field of electoral politics, which will require these kinds of compromises. And I don't think that's necessarily intrinsically a good thing, nor do I think necessarily we ought to lord its realism over a different kind of realism, different kind of political mode of calculation. However, I think it's probably reasonable to say that, that if... The, so the, the strength of the Corbyn campaign is a political constituency that exists in most European countries, which is probably about 20, maybe 25% of the electorate, who would broadly agree with what you might call a sort of Marxist view of the world about the relationship between labour and capital, about the way in which classes work and things like that, pretty much like what you would call old labour, maybe. Um, and again, Labour's precise history in, the, in, in England is, is a little bit different to that. But, but the, the constituency remains essentially the same. Um, now, obviously, electoral considerations obviously would need to go beyond that unless you were operating in a completely different political system. And it seems to me that, that the way to do this for, for the Labour Party is, is 
to look at domestic politics, and this is why, and this is why I understand this political calculation, which comes from Masons, because this is what it looks like to me. It looks like you deal with the security stuff and then emphasize the domestic stuff as your route to victory. Um, and I wonder what those campaigning priorities look like, and whether you know what the relationship between, say, something like momentum and uh, uh, and the, as sort of the Labour Party's campaigning vehicle really is, and what kind of compromises will be involved in that. Mm. Here's a question: Why is Bernie Sanders so much better at social media than Jeremy Corbyn and Labour? Is it an organisational thing? Is it a personal thing? Is it a national thing? What is it? Uh, I think they are... The Democrats are 11 years ahead of us, or 12 years ahead of us, in um, digital organising. Um, I think what happened with Corbyn last year is the equivalent of our like Howard Dean moment, yeah. right? And um, we're just wait. I mean, we're, we're so far behind. Um, uh, we had 17,000 volunteers last summer. This was enormous for a British political campaign. Right? We raised, what was it, 200,000, quarter of a million pounds in, in, in crowdfunding, small donations, average of 19 pounds, like you know, huge, completely wipes the floor with the other candidates, the established political order quakes. They've got half a million people doing something on a weekly basis, volunteering you know, at least once a week, half a million people. The scale of their infrastructure for it is so much more. Also, I think importantly, um, it it's less fringe within the Democrat Party, right? The, some of the people working for Sanders now designing um, his like incredible field operations were all run by volunteers. So, you know uh, the, um, the 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 tech how you can have multiple text conversations with loads of people at once because they work out people who are younger don't like picking up the phone but they're really happy to engage in text and iMessage conversations all of that. Um, a lot of these people come not from so far from the left of the party. I mean Sanders so far from the left of the party is not even in the in the party <laughs> until recently. Um, we don't have really the same that same culture so far in the Labour Party there, I, I am hopeful about changes there is this digital discovery unit which is doing things I'm looking forward to seeing what that comes up with but we we do have to recognise that we are behind and we have loads to learn I'd agree with all of that I would add or I would question given the digital discovery is being headed up by Tom Watson who's a very different kind of character to that trajectory that you're distinguishing in the United States right Howard Dean to Sanders you're saying there's a kind of uh, a real line that can be drawn between these two characters, the development of left politics in the US, but also the Democrat Party, and the deployment of digital technologies in movementist ways with particular affordances. And I think you can really see similarities there. But Tom Watson is from a totally different political tradition, isn't he? I mean, if, if I mean, it's just totally different, isn't it? You know, it comes from a West Midlands, right? Right-wing union. I mean, it's difficult to sort of situate him in a similar context in the UK, isn't it? Well, it seems like... I mean, to me, I'll be honest, mm. that the digital discovery thing seems like fluff. You know, from what the stuff I've seen... I might... I'd love to... I would love to be surprised, you know? That's what. That's the great thing about being sort of pessimistic about things mm. sometimes. But what's your take on it? I'm very hopeful that you will be surprised. Great. There are some really very good people who are working on it. And but leadership's the thing, right? You can have great people. If they're not allowed to do what they want to do, then that's my concern. Uh, 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 I, I think that Tom Watson does kind of get 
how backwards Labour has been with digital. I mean, how incredibly backward. Like members net, like the, as we, there's still like a, an, an intranet, mm. like we're in the mid '90s that Labour members are supposed to engage with in order to find out what sort of political activities are taking place near them. It, it, the, it, the relationship between members and the party administration as it were which is in some ways mediated through digital doesn't function terribly well but I think Tom Watson does very much get that And but my point about the Democrats and, and digital right you're drawing this line between Howard Dean and, um, and Bernie Sanders like, is Howard Dean that much of a leftist? I mean in the in the, he was in, in 2003 in the US he was against the war it, Unique, yeah. unique in the Democrats. So, the time. so was Ken Clark, right? Like in the being again, like True. you know, uh, in the U.S. context, sure, you know, like very much on the left of the, of the Democrats. Are his politics significantly to the left of Tom Watson's, who's sort of from the right of the trade union, social democrat, but sort of from the right of the trade union movement? I'm not so sure. But it's context specific, isn't it? I mean, that was the but, high point of George but, W. Bush. But also, look at some of the people who are working for Bernie Sanders now. They've, yeah. They worked for Hillary Clinton before. It, my point is that it's much more embedded in the Democrat Party, right? Um, because they've because they've seen it, because they used it, they've but they've used it for uh, electoral purposes in part because they have to. They've got to raise the money. They've got to do it on a on a uh, many more candidates. Incentives are there. Many right? more candidates have to do it. Mm. The reason why you know we think and hope that it will be the left that will most be able to use it is because. Uh, these technologies are based on empowering as many people as you can to do as much stuff as possible. And our thesis is that the left are more inspiring to more people and therefore we'll get a bigger movement and more people will be able to use it. But the technology itself is not doesn't have like a left bias no, no. in it. Also, there is, I'll quickly add to that, there is a decent body of scholarship out there that looks at the adoption of these technologies by the US Democrats you know, in opposition, and they say that, you know, there are huge incentives for resource-poor actors to adopt these technologies because they can make up for certain kinds of deficit pretty quickly, very low cost. Now, again, that feeds into my general hypothesis, or my, my, my concern, rather, about Labour. Those incentives exist more so for Labour now than they did for the Democrats in the mid-2000s, right? When you're saying, look, the Tories in the last 10 years under Lord Feldman have raised a quarter of a billion pounds, £250 million. They were £53 million in debt, I think, in 2005. They're in a totally different place right now. You've got the trade union uh, bill. It's, it's, it's been parked temporarily, but it could lose Labour at least, at least several million pounds a year. If... Labour and the leadership ever had incentives to be open about digital stuff, crowdfunding, more movement no, to style features with and, technology, and, and, and that's the way it in. will be now. No, and, and that's the way in because, I mean, the, I assume that the reason why we're excited about half a million people volunteering for something, for a political project termed a political revolution, the, why, the, the reason why we're excited about... Um, uh, properly funded politics and all the rest of it isn't really because you can get a left candidate to win an election. Mm. You know, uh, that alone doesn't really transform society. It's that you can have a movement th- that can build your social block, build your social base, organise people so that you can actually enforce the agenda that you get elected on and therefore be transformative. I mean, Bernie Sanders without a movement, if he becomes the president, what's he going to do? Yeah. I mean, li- I mean, there is nothing that he can do without building a movement, which is the, the failure, as we obviously can see, of the Obama thing, building up that amazing movement in 2008 in order to get elected and then letting it basically demobilise. I mean, that's a bit, there's a bit more... I'll go to you, James, because uh, we're being a bit greedy here. No, by all means. There's a bit more with Obama, though, because Obama had Congress... 
didn't he? Yeah, he should. First, I mean, of course, he should have done a year or two. Yeah. But he goes to the Barmacare first. Mm. The sad thing is, right? They could have basically implemented an NHS, yeah, because they had a unique set of circumstances to do that, and they knew they were going to lose Congress with healthcare reform mm. anyway. That for me is a tragedy. But with Obama, people go, "Well, look, you know, you know, what a disappointment because of this." Yeah, well, they kind of lose Congress because they go for their most adventurous policy first. I no, mean, I they, disagree. You, you don't think they lost I, Congress because of healthcare reform? Uh, I think they lost it because of healthcare reform, but in exactly the opposite way into which you're. Okay, no, you're, I'm, you're, I'm you're, not saying I think that. Okay, that's the general in argument. In exactly right? the opposite way to 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 that argument, right? Because. Um, uh, healthcare reform, you have the opportunity for this to be something that 70% of American public support polling when uh, Obama wins, mm. which is universal, basically NHS. Yeah. Um, public option, right? Public option. Mm. You have the ability to hold a you know, huge, huge, turn the campaign into the campaign for universal healthcare. Yeah. Mobilise people right across the country. You win that argument. It doesn't matter what the pharmaceutical companies say, and it doesn't matter what happens in Congress. You've got sixty senators. You've got the majority in the House of Reps. Just push it through. Mm. Push through the argument. Don't look. Oh, you know, it's all the compromises of Washington. Blah blah blah. blah. And I think you win the argument. I think where you lose support and you lose, and it's a turnout election. The reason why they lose um, in two thousand and ten is they can't mobilise the same level of turnout support because there isn't the same level yeah. of enthusiasm. Yeah. If you keep your campaign going and you can see a concrete improvement that happens through the legislature, i.e. a proper, you know, an American NHS, I think your turnout's better. I think you don't lose um, Ted Kennedy's seat in that by-election in Massachusetts. I think you would be in a much stronger position. So I think it's about, um, it isn't, oh, we try to do the ambitious thing. In the American system, you have to do the ambitious thing first, because that's the chance when you're most likely to have the support in Congress, because the trajectory is generally towards the other party in all midterm elections thenceforth. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to uh, quibble about the American thing. I think that's probably true. Um, to, return to, um, to return to your point about Tom Watson, um, Tom Watson cares about the Labour Party being elected. He cares about power. Um, and that's not actually necessarily a bad thing uh, in a deputy of someone like Jeremy Corbyn, who um, who I, ha- I have to say I've always found it rather difficult to... You know, this is a man who sort of has accidentally bounced into the position that he's in. Now, he's a politician, so I wouldn't underestimate his ambition, but it's, it's pretty clear that this man really didn't expect to be in the leadership position. And he's probably having a little bit of difficulty in knowing what to do with it. Um, I mean, his, some of his performance and, and actually understanding you know, the position that he's now in, it doesn't seem entirely clear that he's got it. I mean, so you talk about funding, you talk about micro-donations in funding, you talk about the trade union bill. There's also the, you know, it looks like, so it looks like some of the measures in the trade union bill have been watered down. Uh, it looks like some of the proposed cuts to short money have been watered down. Well, we don't know for sure, right? I mean, it's parked that's for the next I, six that's months. That's why I say looks like. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but this is this is probably going to happen somewhere along yeah. the line, actually. Um, I mean, the way that political parties are funded are changing. You mentioned Lord Feldman. It mm. doesn't seem possible to me that the same strategy of works course. for the Labour Party. Uh, the sort of Sainsbury phenomenon is a Blairite phenomenon. It's not a, it's something that's generally replicable without without that context. Um, so, so I mean, you're. This question of micro donations, things, and you know, you're drawing inspiration from the Sanders campaign. And it's worth remembering that this is this is a campaign, right? And campaigns tend to attract these these sort of really strong surges in micro donations. Whether that then translates into the kind of continual 
fundraising that allows the Labour Party to fund Bid for Obama 08. to fund its infrastructure across the UK. That to me is is not so clear. That mm. to me is not so clear that that mm. happens. Totally different system. Um, you're absolutely right. And and actually, the the Labour Party much more than the Conservative Party needs its local infrastructure to mount general election campaigns. And I mean, I think I think that allows us to raise questions of whether. Uh, so th- I, I wouldn't want to understate the importance of the Corbyn campaign and the number of people it got into the Labour Party. The question of whether this now translates into a machine, an electoral machine that elects people and that has actually, therefore, some control and some weight in the party. That, that to me, I, I, don't know, I don't know that that's true. I mean, I, I, and again, you know, I, I stand as an interested outsider here. Uh, but one who speaks to a lot of Labour people and a lot of Labour people who say, well, I don't see these momentum people at, at constituency meetings. And I see them a little more now, maybe on, on sort of door knocking, particularly with the mayoral campaign coming up. Um, but the other thing I want to raise maybe is the question of policy. And I think that actually is, is an interesting, it's one we haven't really touched on. And the question of what policy priorities are for the Corbyn McDonnell leadership, because this this... It doesn't seem yet clear to me. And it's one of the difficulties, I think, that um, that has been pretty clear, actually, in, in polling, is that people still don't know what they stand for. Um, that it's still very, very unclear for the vast majority of people what Corbyn and McDonald stand for. And without that, I think, I think there's a problem. Now... I, I'm, I, don't, I don't necessarily want to engage in speculative policy making, but I would suggest that there are areas that a very clear electoral coalition can be built in the UK, and those are domestic issues. Those are housing, transport, health, energy, things like that. I just want to return to this quickly, and then um, we'll come to you, James. Uh, I think that's a bit unfair to John McDonnell, because I think there are differences, actually, in the operations. I, mean, I think McDonnell's setting out a bit of an offer... I think you can see that less so with Jeremy Corbyn. I absolutely, I absolutely agree with you. He seems to be almost exclusively focusing on foreign, for, sort of defence and security and foreign policy. Well, in terms of media construction, right, he's not trying to undermine that, right? He's not actively trying to work against that. McDonald's stuff around building a new economy, around you know, for instance, with Tata Steel interview with Ma. Towards the end, he was even saying, you know, we need to build an entrepreneurial state. It's not there. It's not worked out. But they're trying to create a hmm. sort of. It's not bad. I think it's yeah. great. Yeah, I, I think, think it's pretty. I mean, but I, 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 do, I think what you're saying is um, is extremely unfair on Corbyn. I think all the way through, he has been point poking at the holes of uh, of what the problems are and of the anxi- anxieties people feel, which is around. If you look at the two things that he stressed when he um, uh, put forward the, his shadow cabinet, housing and mental health. Right, this is about. Insecure feelings of insecurity, mm. feelings of anxiety, things that we do experience, but we don't, we, we can't really name them mm. and we don't really know what the solutions are. He's making these much more salient political issues. And then McDonald, I oh, think, I it, and McDonald is coming forward and starting to provide a real alternative, uh, a real alternative economic strategy that could then provide the solutions for housing, for, um, you know, structural unemployment and all the rest of it. I'm, I mean, what worries me here is, is, is time. Um, and I don't know that there is sufficient time to proceed slowly about this. Uh, and I worry about sort of message discipline and things like this. I, I mean, steel, I think, is actually an interesting, an interesting question on this. And because there are some serious conflicts here, I think. Uh, and one is to do with the kind of instincts towards nationalisation, which are, 
are understandable. But there is, it brings up a, a much longer term issue about, you know, actually probably British steel production on this level, not going to happen. Uh, certainly room there in Port Talbot for uh, probably a high-end steel manufacturing. Uh, certainly you've got to ask questions about what happens you know, if that if that industry is downsized, um, and what can replace it, um, you know, but that that you know that isn't an issue that is solved by nationalisation, particularly if it's nationalisation over a, a, a particular period. So let's even nationalise it for one year or whatever things yeah. like that. I mean, those 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 economic questions, those questions of economic transformation and transformation of the British economy, especially. Are still underway. Yeah, I mean, also what worried me was McDonald is saying we would nationalise it if we had to, but you know, ideally we'll find a private buyer, and that the the, the deployment of nationalisation would be instrumental to sort of calming the situation down, you know, finding the right kind of investor, making sure they had the long term interests of the of the workers and the and the plants at stake. And the facts are, China has huge overcapacity with regards to steel production because of how it was set up before the global financial crisis. There is a massive downturn in terms of domestic demand for this stuff. They then, because that's, a, and this is Marx, right? There is a crisis of overproduction in lots of different things. It's not just steel. Then the Chinese state, in order to placate workers and in order to ensure that there aren't, you know, domestic problems, right? Uh, Labour grievances, large-scale unemployment, and so on and so forth, say, well, okay, well, a lot of this overproduction can go overseas. We'll make sure the price is significantly below the world sort of the market rate globally, okay? The US is dealing with this. The Russians have dealt with this. Even the, you know, the rest of Europe wants to deal with it. Britain doesn't. Now, this seems to me almost a unique set of circumstances in which John, John McDonnell can say, we have to nationalise it, okay? We have to nationalise it. It won't work. The idea of having a private buyer when China can produce this stuff cheaper than it, you know, it's not possible for a private buyer to make a profit off British Steel at the moment, right? Like you say, it's just not viable. And I don't understand why McDonald's not being more honest about this, because that seems to me like a huge opportunity. Steel's an emotive issue, but also it's fundamental to a modern economy. You know, Mason was talking about the defence industry thing, but that's, I mean, that's also true. You know, there's certain metrics which judge a country's defence capabilities. Steel manufacture is one of them, right? Because without steel, you, you can't have a potential war economy. Not, I think now in nuclear weapons, that question's moot. You can't have a war economy if you're a single state taking on every other state. No, sure. Like, with nuclear weapons, that stuff's moot anyway. But it seems anyway for a right-wing government or... You know, it's not yeah, even engaged I mean, I, with it. You I know. also don't think it's a primary left-wing question. Anyway, no, but steel is steel's been fundamental to yeah, a modern yeah, no, economy I, for hundred years, right? Yeah, I agree. So, what do you think about this with McDonald and? Uh, I think he, missed opportunity. No, I don't think. I think he's made a. I mean, that I thought that Mar interview was excellent. I yeah. think he made a very uh, uh, clear and articulate and a big and a big sea change, right? P- placing hmm. the uh, the idea of. Um, uh, industries being strategic, yeah. us actually having an industrial strategy and having an investment strategy that is linked to an industrial strategy is, I mean, th- th- this is language that has not been spoken about in British politics for quite some time. I mean, it's, it's been in it's been in academia and now it's front and centre. You can always say, all right, fine, it doesn't go as far as we want. It doesn't do, do all of these things. And, you know, we probably have a slightly harder position than the, than the position that he's taken. But, you know, let's view it in in the context. Also, let's view it in the context of something else, which is he is laying out, I think, this, uh, you know, what this alternative industrial strategy would be, what this alternative economic strategy would be and how steel would fit into it. Now, 
not all of that is fully yet mapped out and worked out. But so to in order to say what would you do with a nationalised... Anyway, we would really be talking about uh, public ownership of steel. So we were talking about workers' ownership, um, mm. uh, uh, ownership by community. The Mason uh, option. The mutualisation, right, of... Yeah, I wouldn't call it the Mason option, but you know what? Well, but, he's saying short-term nationalisation and then mutualisation pretty quickly, right? You wouldn't be able to mutualise it overnight, would you? No, right, fine. Um, and that is the sort of position that I personally yeah. would um, would support. I think that make that makes the most sense. But you know, McDonnell is has to shift the debate, which is what he is doing, and then he has to uh, he has to pre- present the way he has shifted the debate within a broader strategy, which is still developing. So I think you know, let's look at the intervention he's made. It's it's really good. I mean, he he looks like he's got a plan, but he does have a plan, and compare it to what um, Osborne and and mm. uh, and uh, the business secretary have you don't I mean what have you got Sajid Javid right Sajid yes, Javid yeah. yeah well I mean it's a sort of strange Ayn Rand inspired uh, his favourite book isn't it man. yeah the I mean he reads handle. passages to it he read passages of it to his wife to seduce her <laughs> Um, he's, I mean, he's a very, very strange and actually very extreme man. I mean, it's one of the one of the uh, good messages to have about the about this government is really is is the the deep strangeness and, and deep sort of ideological commitment of someone like Sajid Javid. Anyway, and it, and it was clear when uh, on the budget day with the um, on Newsnight, which is wonderful because yeah, Mariana Mazzucato an actual pro, right, up against Sajid Javid, who presents him, who's, who, well, the, the sort of rhetoric around him is, oh, this guy is such, he's so clever, he made millions in, in Deutsche Bank, in, in Singapore or wherever, he really knows what he's doing, and he goes up against someone who actually knows something about economics, and the guy looks like a... He doesn't. He doesn't look like he's got a clue. This is this is a, perhaps a that's a, a good point and maybe one to dwell on is say the this McDonnell appointment of the advisory panel is this panel of experts in economics includes people like Thomas Piketty, Mariana Mazzucato, uh, lots of you know big names and 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 good brains. Um, is that approach replicable across other areas of public policy? And would would you want to see that in in say, housing, uh, social settlement areas of policy? Um, I'm not so sure it's possible, and I'm also not so sure it's necessarily desirable. I think um, part of the problem... The, the economy is the link issue, and it's the one that has been most expertised and made most technocratic and most distant from people. So that is the one I think is most important to start to, to, start to bring back. Um, uh, for other areas, I'd actually like to see... Um, activists, movements, ordinary people, ordinary organisations playing those roles with some academic support and all the rest of it. But I, I think the area where it's most important is the economy. I think elsewhere, you know, on housing, yeah, sure, we listen to a few housing experts, but let's also listen to tenants and let's, you know. Mm-hmm. Do, you think, do you think Labour actively, or the leadership, are thinking about how you could foment, you know, organised public discussions around precisely these things? Because at the moment that seems to be almost exclusively with the economy, right? You have these meetings and so on. Would it be possible to have kind of assemblies around specific policy areas, maybe national, that would go national as well? Is that something that, A, Momentum are thinking about and B, that the Labour leadership might be thinking about? Um, I very much hope so. Um, I mean, it's, it is definitely one of the, we as in Momentum, it is definitely one of the things that we have been speaking about. What is the best? But we don't just want things that are i mean discussion for its own sake is good right that 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 is useful but out of that what's kind of organizational form what is the thing that keeps that going so you know i would like to see and i don't know you know where we by we either labor or we as in momentum may be at with this but fine if you get uh 
a, a meeting about mental health in Nuneaton and people come and talk about it and you bring in all the different charities and all the different organisations and public health and all of that. But how does that become an organisation that continues to act? That does, it, it's not a one-off meeting. And I, I, I don't think we're there yet with quite knowing how to do that. But I think that's part of the, that's going to be a necessary component to building up our organised social blocks as we move forward in the next four years. You're listening to Navarra FM here on Residence 104.4 FM, London's number one radio station. Uh, we are joined in the studio today by James Schneider from Momentum. James and I, along with James, are talking about Labour media strategy. I guess we've talked more about movement building than we thought we might have, but I think that's been a valuable conversation nonetheless. Uh, this show will be up later on today on SoundCloud and on iTunes. If you haven't subscribed to Navarra on iTunes, please do so. All our shows are available there. Right, uh, just under 10 minutes left. So we've talked about... Labour, momentum, media, movement building, um, the, the building of sort of social coalitions and so on and so forth. Um, this is sort of more of a question I wanted to ask Ben. He, he isn't here, unfortunately. Do you think that some of the people around the leadership view last... Well, this is two questions, really. View last summer's win as the result of, sort of top-down hierarchical organising? And does that also mean that they've kind of displayed are they dispensing with the necessity of more digitally led sort of social movement activist stuff? Do they think that's not really necessary to win? Uh, is, is the sort of, I'll ask you that, just that question. Because that's what I've been told by a few people is that there are key people who think, you know, we, we built this, it was disciplined, it was hierarchical, and that's why we won. 60,000 people registered to vote in the last 24 hours. I mean, that doesn't seem the, the correct assessment to me, at least. Uh, I think there might be a... I'm going to say tendency rather than pe- rather than people. I think they're two contradictory. Well, not contradictory, but there are two different tendencies. There's one that says, um, you know, we were organised beforehand. We'll carry on being organised, and we'll try to bring in some of the other elements. But we'll mm. do the things that we m- more know. Mm. And then there is, I mean, but I, I'm biased, right? Because you you uh, you view what happened from your perspective overwhelming. So if you were in a if you were in a campaign office that was you know, much more tightly organised and, and, and disciplined and you'll think the campaign was more like that. If, uh, like, if you were me and I was in a volunteer office, which was very kind of spontaneous and, and ground up, it looks more like that. But I mean, I think it was more ground up and I think we do need to have more of those elements. But also we have many more of those elements than we would otherwise. And I think it's our job to try to um, pull on the rope and push it in that direction. Uh, I will refrain from the criminology and say this instead, which is that it seems to me that there is a conflict here between a sort of minimalist and maximalist interpretation of political actions. One one position says, look, organisations like Momentum, um, after they have, you know, after Corbyn has been elected and, and there now exists a struggle in the party, ought to be largely concerned with asserting dominance over various factions within the party. Uh, and ensuring that we can therefore enact a relatively conservative, nonetheless progressive, series of policy goals. Uh, you know, definitely changing for society for the better, but this dream of, you know, transforming the Labour Party and transforming society via that, that method is is probably a bit pie in the sky. And actually, we, ne- we need now to be political realists about about our approach. And then there's another interpretation, which is the one that that, that that is in polemic with, which is saying, actually, the strength of this movement lies not only in its ability to bridge interparliamentary expression, but to bring 
that rather hollowed out shell of formal politics of Westminster politics into contact with a vast a social majority of people who are deeply uninspired and feel deeply alienated from political process and in that process uh, begin to transform society in ways that are as yet unimaginable within parliament now i mean i you know i i, I think i think that conflict is partly an age old one um, but I think it has some very interesting, uh, you know, expressions here, and I, you know, I can, <laughs> um, I can, I, I can understand both sides of, of 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 the issue, and and perhaps you know one of the one of the questions I was asking you about time, um, and the time in which. Uh, uh, forces like momentum operate uh, is partly to do with the suspicion that it is currently tied to a leadership that in five years time might no longer be there uh, and if it wants to do the very very big things that it seems to it seems to have as part of its constitution uh, it now it needs to think about how it can exist beyond a Corbyn leadership and I'm sure that's an issue um, that is being considered by people close to Corbyn and McDonald, because you know uh, leaderships don't last forever, and you've got to think about succession pl- planning. But but that that maximalist minimalist conflict, I, th- I think, is really visible here. Mm. We've got just under five minutes left, so I suppose some concluding thoughts. I'll I'll start, and then we'll go to you, James, and then to you, James Butler. Um, it seems to me that there is a certain magical thinking at the moment going on with the leadership that you know the nature of the surprise win last summer will be repeated in a general election that to me looked haphazard absurd destined to fail until about a couple of months ago now i think events beyond it may mean that something strange very strange may happen in the next couple of years or in 2020 i'm not so sure anymore but that's my take is that i think there is a sort of almost a fatalism around this stuff. I remember seeing an interview with uh, Ken Livingston on The Daily Politics, and he said, we'll keep on making those left-wing arguments in public, and gradually the public will be won over. And I think at the moment that's surrogating for a strategy, strategy on mobilisation, strategy on how to use these new members, and a strategy on how to raise money. I'll leave it at that. Uh, James Schneider. I agree with some of that. Um, and I agree, uh, and James, I agree with you with, with your minimalist, maximalist thing. We... We're trying to do something incredibly ambitious, I think. Okay, I'm more for the maximalist camp. You might have you might have noticed. We are trying. We are trying to. Uh, we are trying to transform society. We are trying to build uh, new social blocks. We're trying to build that up into being a social majority, and have a Labour government that can then uh, th- then transform things. We're so far ahead of where we thought we could have been a year ago. Probably further ahead of where we thought we could be six months ago. Is that enough? No, not it, it. It isn't enough yet. Have we built a social majority? Do we have the blocks? Do we have a million members? Do we have three million people campaigning for Labour? Um, uh, uh, building for do do we have a, a new national tenants union across all different types of tenure? No, we don't have these things yet. We do need these things to transform society, but we are. Uh, I think the best thing to do is engage with the process and try to uh, push it in that direction, and and hopefully we'll get there. Yeah, I mean, I I have sort of not much. I mean, I I suppose what I would say is that there perhaps needs to be for if you are if if people are determined to act in the sphere of formal politics, a little closer attention to questions of message discipline and those really unfortunate and actually quite you know boring. It's a political nitty gritty, and you know, I think I think there really is still a question, and it's the thing I brought up earlier today, and I, I think, you know, it still matters. Is 
it's the, the polling tells us that people are still unclear about what the Corbyn McDonald message is, and that's the that's the next big hurdle. And I, I don't I I don't necessarily see clear strategies for change there. Also, a little sceptical about the, that that question of the relationship between parties and movements. So. Will fairness as a frame be enough? <laughs> Gents, thank you very much. My name is Aaron Bastani. This is Navarro Media. See you same time, same place next week. Bye.